Hey, I'm Joy, and welcome to my podcast, Tell Me More. Hey, welcome back to my show, Tell Me More, a place where business and tech leaders tell me more about their lives. This week, we're speaking with Andy Yang, CEO of the photography company 500 Pixels. With over 12 million users across the entire world, 500px is one of the leading startups in the Canadian tech scene. In today's episode, Andy and I talk about his experience moving from VC to entrepreneur, the importance of deep work in a company culture, and we break down what it's really like to be a CEO at a tech company. Today, we are so lucky to have Andy on the show, and he tells us more about his life. 500px is a premier photography community. Our mission is to build the most uh, passionate photography community and to really celebrate our artistry and our artists on the platform. Uh, we have over 12 million registered users from basically every country on earth. Um, we have uh, a partnership with our creators where they can upload the best images, uh, also license the work on behalf of them. We also arrange for a certain select, uh, a few of them to go to fulfill custom shoots on behalf of our brand clients. Uh, so it's really this powerful platform that enables uh, photographers to share their, their work with the world. Mm-hmm. So how did you become the CEO of 500 Pixels? Yeah, so um, you know, I had, uh, moved to Canada about six years ago. Uh, I started as a, as a venture capitalist and started covering 500px uh, as an investment and, you know, really admired the founders, admired what, uh, you know, the online community that was created. And, you know, uh, when I uh, found myself kind of available for roles, I had, uh, you know, always been a fan of the company and joined uh, basically after the Series A round in 2013. Um, this was, uh, the Series A was, uh, Invest, uh, was led by uh, Andrew Z. Horowitz, which is uh, basically one of the, if not the best, uh, venture capital firm uh, in the world. And, you know, they had a very impressive thesis on the company. Uh, so, you know, I jumped aboard uh, after that. Um, I, I joined as a chief operating officer. Um, and then after about six months, I uh, kind of made the switch to the CEO role. And yeah, it's just been a lot of learning ever since. And it's just an exciting opportunity. Mm-hmm. So in this role, you know, what are the best parts of being a CEO? And then what if, what are some of the worst parts, if you can name them? <laughs> so the best parts of uh, the role is, you know, just the constant uh, learning. Uh, I learn uh, new things every single day, new situations. Um, and that's, that's also, you know, you know, part and parcel with uh, some of the tougher things or the worst parts, if you will. Um, yeah, that there's no set cadence. Um, there's something new, yeah, like every single day. So that unpredictability um, definitely is, is kind of uh, taxing on uh, just the body and the the mind and the soul, if you will. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah like in terms of the best parts, uh, you know, there's a lot of freedom, uh, a lot of autonomy, a lot of impact. Um, you know, and, and definitely there's just the opportunity to recruit uh, and work and train with the best and, and the team that you. Uh, curate and uh, one of the best parts is to see the people that you work with grow and learn with you over time and and you can take a step back and see an amazing company and a culture that you've built um in terms of yeah the worst things um you know i I do have to travel a lot 
which I have, you know, two young kids at home, which is definitely taxing. Um, and just, it's hard to be away from them. Um, there is a lot of pressure. So, you know, being funded by, uh, a Silicon Valley based, uh, venture capital firm, there's obviously very high expectations. Uh, the pace, uh, is definitely very fast. Um, and so you have to just be mentally and, and also physically prepared for a lot of the rigors. Um, and yeah, like I think in terms of, uh, you know, just matching the glamorous portrayal of being a CEO, mm-hmm, yeah. um, you know, there's definitely, yeah, like it just, it, it begins and ends with you. And uh, someone told me, you know, you're, you're going to be the emotional battery for the team. And so that means you, you basically have to be on at all times. So you can't really have ever uh, a lull in energy uh, because people are going to perceive that. So, you know, you're going to have to be, uh, you know, bring your A game every single hour, uh, every single minute. Um, and at the same time, it's just, you know, like, uh, yeah, like that, that ownership, uh, you know, you, you are, you are, you know, definitely going to have to roll up your sleeves. You know, I, uh, you know, wash the dishes, I clean up the bathroom, you know, it, it runs the gamut. And then <laughs> at the same time, you know, you'll be, uh, networking with some like amazing people. Um, so yeah, it just really runs the gamut. So you talked about, you know, it can be very stressful and it takes a toll on your on your energy and stuff. So going along that, do you ever have to set boundaries and tell people that, you know, you can't call me after six or is it kind of like you're always on, you always have to respond to, to whatever emergency there is? Um, it really depends on, on uh, your leadership style. Um, for me, uh, as a person of faith, um, I have, I subscribe to servant leadership. So, uh, if it's within the team, uh, I make myself available at all times and, and I, and I tell them, you know, uh, I'll get back to you as, as soon as possible. Or, you know, um, if they ping me on Slack or, uh, send me a, a text message, I'll just say, if I'm busy, I'll be like, Hey, I'm with my kids. I'll get back to you after, uh, I put them down, uh, uh, for bedtime. So usually after eight or nine. So yeah, like there are, there are boundaries you set, but at the same time as a leader, uh, I want to serve my team. And so uh, how I can best serve them is to remove roadblocks, answer questions, provide direction. Um, and so those questions will come all throughout the day and all throughout sometimes the night. So yeah, like there's definitely um, an always on type of mentality uh, that uh, we at Fire MPX have. But at the same time, there are, you know, boundaries that each person can set. So it really depends on your kind of personal judgment. Mm-hmm. So if it's possible, I know every single day is so different, but if you can try, is there a typical example of what a day in your life would be? So say like, what was Tuesday <laughs> yeah. or what was Wednesday? What was even today so far? Um, yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, I could, I could kind of tell you what a typical week uh, is, is like. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so it, it starts on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So it starts on Sunday. So Sunday night, I usually plan out uh, what I want to accomplish for the week and also review uh, what we did last week. And so if there's metrics uh, from our executive dashboard or tear sheet, we call it, uh, to review those and ask any kind of pertinent questions that um, I want some of my direct reports to to answer and also to come up with strategies on, you know, how to improve certain metrics, et cetera. Um, And then Monday, uh, it's more of... um, the, the individual team meetings. So I try to do a kind of hopscotch around the different team uh, or staff meetings. And then on Tuesdays, uh, that's when the executive team or the senior leadership team meets and we have our exec staff meeting. 
And, um, you know, I'll do a check-in also regularly with the board, with one of my board members on Tuesday. Um, and then, uh, so that's, you know, largely Tuesday. On Wednesday, we try to reserve Wednesdays and Thursdays for no meetings. And so we just, we subscribe to the, the theory of, you know, deep work. And so mm-hmm. you need large uninterrupted blocks of time to do kind of deep work. So if it's coding, if it's a financial spreadsheet, if it's, uh, putting together a presentation, trying to reserve as much kind of open-ended time as possible so you can get into the flow and really just start to create. Um, so those are Wednesdays and Thursdays. Uh, I'll have some uh, external meetings. So those are kind of client or you know, potential client meetings. Um, Fridays are our one-on-ones. And so these are obviously just a one-on-one meeting with each of my direct reports uh, where we'll talk about business issues, personal issues, and also, you know, just to just to connect on a weekly basis, um, and then I try to reserve, <laughs> uh, you know, from two to four, like kind of like office hours where I do uh, events, you know, or podcasts like this, uh, where oh, I'll try yay. to mentor people or just meet with people in the industry. So, yeah. So then, um, and then, so from a team perspective, yeah, that's kind of the week, and then. On Mondays, we start with all hands uh, at, uh, or actually, actually that's Tuesdays. Uh, we have a Tuesdays all hands at 10 a.m. And then we cap the week at what we call power hour at 4 p.m. And so that's more of a relaxed kind of happy hour type of event that we host internally. We do new hire interviews. Um, so really kind of uh, that's quote unquote a typical week. Uh, it gets thrown off through travel, through conferences, through board meetings, and just kind of the general cadence um, so there really is just a bunch of unpredictability. So that's the best I can do for a kind of a typical uh, work week or work day. So does your work week then kind of end on Tuesday then, if that's when you have your power hour? Oh, no, sorry. The power hour is on Friday. Oh, um, okay, so, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so, and then generally, yeah, we try to run a Tuesday to Monday sprint um, mm-hmm. uh, from a development perspective. So then, yeah, like... Uh, Tuesday's, you know, a, 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 a good start to the week, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then going off that, you were saying how, you know, you like to put things in place like deep work and then have these office hour kind of time set off. Did you bring these into the company? Yep. And because I believe, you know, a, a lot of people talk about how the leader sets a company culture. So were you the one to establish these kind of guidelines or were they in place before you came to the company? Um, I think it's a, it's a mix of both. Uh, the founders always believed in, you know, just a very serene uh, working environment where people, you know, would be, you know, very deeply entrenched and, and doing like just the act of creation, whether it's, you know, you're creating something with code or creating something in design. So using Illustrator or creating a presentation or a financial spreadsheet, whatever it was. Uh, the founders wanted this essence of serenity. And I was really a big fan of that because uh, we have, we do have an open uh, floor plan and so people sit at open desks. So it is important for people to be able to concentrate and not get interrupted every 10, 15 minutes with a different question. And so um, I definitely subscribe to that ethos. In terms of the maker's schedule, uh, it was based off a blog post I, uh, from a person I really highly admire, uh, Paul Graham, who's the founder of uh, Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talked about the maker's schedule uh, versus the manager's schedule. And so the manager's schedule is, you know, they're going to have meetings and you're at the whim of their schedule. So they'll schedule whenever there's an open block. 
And if that's, you know, right in the middle of, say, you know, a three-hour open window, and it's, and it's that hour in between, and so you're, you're cutting up that person's uh, time in basically three-hour chunks, three one-hour chunks, mm-hmm. that is very kind of disruptive. And we all, uh, there's been multiple studies on context switching, on multitasking, how just, you know, destructive that is to flow and the ability to uh, create, especially for developers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, developers will have it all kind of mapped out in their head of, you know, the different systems. And then, you know, it'll take them basically, you know, between 20 to 30 minutes to get even in that flow. And then now there's only 30 minutes left in that one hour block. And there's only a limited amount of time that you can code. And then they have to go to a meeting and then they have to come back, get another 30 minutes to get into that flow. So that, that was just very disruptive. And I felt, uh, coming from finance and consulting that, yeah, like I appreciate those three, four hour blocks of time to work on financial models or presentations where I can just, you know, put headphones on and just jam. Uh, that's where I wanted to incorporate that structure and that ethos and that behavior into uh, Founder PX. And so, yeah, that's definitely uh, has been uh, an influence of mine on the culture. Okay, so flipping it back to you, you said you came from a background of consulting and finance. So moving from that, how did you know you wanted to work at a tech company and specifically a company in photography and also in Toronto, a place where, you know, you're also not from? I mean, I'm from Toronto and I think it's great, but what did you think of it when you first moved here? <laughs> no, Toronto is great. Um, well, I'll start with technology. So, you know, I, I uh, went to school at Berkeley and, you know, uh, graduated in 2000. So tech um, was just basically the only industry uh, a lot of my friends were going into. So uh, I became really interested in uh, the industry. I've always been uh, somewhat of a nerd uh, in terms of, you know, <laughs> gadgets and just how things work. Uh, so I really loved uh, technology from at least a personal use case perspective. And then uh, as I kind of unfolded into, you know, different roles within technology, uh, really started to understand, like, what I liked. I liked uh, building communities. I liked working online. Um, I liked e-commerce. Uh, and so a lot of these passions of mine kind of all culminated uh, at a place like Fire and PX. And so, yeah, six years ago when my wife uh, got a job at Ryerson, we moved the whole family over from the Bay Area. Oh. Okay. And yeah, and so that's what brought us to uh, Toronto, and uh, then I discovered Fire and PX, and then joined. So it was really, you know, uh, Fire and PX in terms of you know what attracted me is you know definitely the opportunity to work at a global scale. Uh, you know the the ethos of you know beautiful design, a really great user experience uh, attracted me, as well as yeah, there's the stunning photos. Like I'm a very visual learner, and I love. Um, putting together stories through our photos and through photography. And so that using other people's uh, photography to tell a story that I want to tell is is something that, uh, you know, definitely appealed to what I'm passionate about. Uh, And since I've been, you know, trying to learn uh, and pick up photography, I've been always an enthusiast. And now I I would say I'm I'm getting a lot better and it's definitely changed how how I see and perceive the world. So even though you studied civil engineering at Berkeley, you still worked in consulting afterwards for a few years. Why did you make that decision? Um, so, yeah, like, you know, c- coming out of a civil engineering program, I, I 
uh, was a bit agnostic to what I did in terms of technology. And so uh, consulting was uh, <laughs> a way to get kind of an undeclared major, uh, <laughs> yeah. if you will. And yeah, so, that's true. Um, you know, and so I got to see a lot of different projects and I was deployed to the financial services industry uh, and FinTech is now huge. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just got this really great foundation for technology and finance and, you know, started to kind of um, just learn a lot from the different projects. Uh, consulting is, uh, you know, teaches you a lot of the, the foundational skills of how to tell a story, how to get data, how to interview clients. Um, and then uh, on some of the larger implementation projects, uh, I got the foundation for tech. So I racked servers. I was a junior kind of a Unix system admin. Uh, so I got to learn a lot of the basic skills as, as uh, in, in terms of tech. And so a lot of people uh, these days have never you know seen a server or they just use AWS. But I'm like, hey, I lived in a data center for about like a year, so I kind of know you know what people are talking about, how it works, um, and you know running Cat5 cables all all the place. So it just gives me a bit more confidence to say like, look, I've I've done those things in my life. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And after that, I saw that you worked in venture capital for a few years. So what were some of your key insights working in that industry? I, I, in between, I'd, I'd gone to business school. And then, um, you know, before business school, I, I did I did some work as a uh, for a nonprofit through Accenture, through consulting. Um, so uh, I learned kind of, you know, microfinance and you know, post-MBA with an investment banker. Uh, so I learned like the financial basics and to you know how to really use Excel uh, from a power user perspective and how to model anything. Um, so that really kind of set me up to be a VC. And so you know transitioning from the from the sell side to now the buy side, mm-hmm. uh, it really helped me learn kind of the uh, you know I was great grateful to have the you know the financial understanding of how capital markets work, and then moving more on the private capital side really understanding how to evaluate a company, uh, how my partners viewed specific investments, uh, due diligence, um, and also uh, how to be scrappy. And so, you know, you can only be a VC so long before you get just inspired by all the entrepreneurs you're meeting. And so, you know, I had learned very early on in my VC uh, career uh, just how to listen and how to discern uh, what, people were telling you whether they're hyping something or whether it was substance. Um, and so I also learned a lot kind of about entrepreneurship and how much I valued it and how much I valued the freedom um, and the ability to kind of create your own destiny, if you will. And then, um, you know, one of the key things I did early on was right when AngelList uh, was starting as a platform, I would myself, uh, you know, just start screening companies uh, basically, you know, 15 to 20 uh, in a concentrated day. So I call them, you know, super Fridays. They're, you know, only for me, but I would just scour AngelList and just book, you know, 30 minute meetings with each of uh, the companies that interested uh, and were within our, our frame of uh, investment. And then just started uh, running through these calls and, and evaluating and sourcing these deals. And that honed my eye on, you know, what to look for. And then when I transitioned to the accelerator, and that was just more amplified. So we would have these cohorts where we would evaluate, you know, three, four hundred companies at a time, and then to use that insight that I learned as a VC to evaluate these companies 
and then, you know, schedule them in for, you know, what we call Super Saturdays or Super Mondays, depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we would schedule, again, these 20 to 30 minute interviews in in person mm-hmm. where they would pitch our investment committee. And then we would make ultimately, you know, score them on a numeric scale and then um, run them through. So that's on the sourcing side. But then as, a, as running the uh, accelerator, I, you know, had to mentor and train these these companies. So we had, we did batches of five every six months. And so really working with entrepreneurs, um, you know, refining their pitch decks, their business models, their products, and really being in the trenches with them, you know, you just learn so much about entrepreneurs and I've met, I've, uh, you know, worked with some of the best. Um, and yeah, like, so that's really a key learning of mine is just, you know, how to be an entrepreneur and how to make things succeed. So you said that you, you know, really learned how to listen and find out when someone was being overhyped or where there was substance. Can you expand a bit more on that? So how did you know, like what set you off knowing that this person is embellishing the facts or there's something actually like a diamond in the rough for this person? Yeah, I mean, it's very nuanced and it's, you, um, it's kind of almost, <laughs> uh, you know how like in a lie detector they try to get your baseline and yeah. They ask you what's your what's your name, you know, how old are you, mm-hmm. and they try to get your baseline. And so, what I would try to do is get somebody's baseline. And if they're just naturally super pumped and super positive about everything, um, you know, that's their baseline. And so, if they were uh, not as super pumped over a certain metric or a certain you know vision then that tells you something of like, okay, they're <laughs> unsure on this. Yeah. But if they're generally, you know, very kind of neutral or kind of pessimistic, and then they get super excited about something, then you know, like, oh, that's that. there's something really of substance there. And it kind of, you know, makes you want to draw in and dig in more. But really, it's trying to get that baseline and understand, you know, what the deviation is on certain pieces of information that they're telling you. The other piece is just your own due diligence of using their product uh, or if they have a demo going through the demo, it's surprising that so many VCs, uh, at least back in the day, didn't do that before mm-hmm. they met with an entrepreneur. And that was insane to me because it was just like, I would hopefully, you know, have all the questions like, hey, I used your product. I have questions or, or feedback on these specific points. And that's what impressed entrepreneurs. Like, oh, wow, this person took the time to you know, run through the product or, you know, go through all these extra steps, if you will. And so that's, uh, you know, essentially a lot of the, the basics. Then you can ask them very kind of uh, more intimate questions about uh, specific decisions that they made in the product or in the business. So now that you've come from both sides, which one do you prefer? Like, obviously, you're in entrepreneur role now, so I feel like you're biased. But, you know, if you could stack them against each other, <laughs> what would you say? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I would say I definitely prefer operating because, uh, as a VC, it's, um, you're always on the sidelines. You're always like, you can still help the company by making an introduction, um, and ultimately funding the company, but there's nothing, there's nothing like operating because that's the true, uh, test, if you will, of, you know, whether you can make a company successful or not. And so, uh, 
in terms of just the skill set of, you know, investing versus operating. Uh, for me personally, I prefer operating, even though it is, I would say, more uh, much more stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I would say, yeah, it, it's definitely more work. It's, 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 it's more encompassing, although VCs do work hard. Um, but I would say, you know, for an operator, that's how you build something of true value. Uh, it's how you build skills. So you're building companies that, you know, employ people that, uh, you know, create a product that millions of people use around the world. And VCs enable that, and they're you know they they build their their amazing firms and you know create share, uh, you know, monetary value for their LPs. Um, ultimately, it really depends for you know the people that are listening on the podcast. It really depends on what type of skill set you want to build. And you know VC is a great uh, way to you know help entrepreneurs. It's it's a necess- It's definitely necessary. It's very needed. Um, but at the t- same time, you know there's there's hundreds, if not thousands, of startups in, in Toronto and Ontario that need really smart people um, and that, yeah, like can, you know, create a uh, product and, and opportunities for others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So second last question, is there any popular entrepreneurial advice that you either strongly agree with or that you strongly disagree with? Hmm, that's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I hate to say it sounds so politically correct, but like, it's honestly like take everything with a grain of salt. So there's no playbook for entrepreneurship. It's you just do what it takes whenever, like every time. So there's, there's not going to be like this blog post or this advice that you're going to hear. That's just all like, it's super applicable or amazing. It's, you know, use your own judgment and, and get you your own experience. Uh, when you read these tidbits of advice and then you, again, use your judgment if, and distill it to if it applies to your particular situation. You know, the, the move fast and break things, that works for Facebook, but it might not work for a financial services uh, tech startup, <laughs> right? Like you yeah. can't break people's wallet or money. <laughs> so it's like there's certain things that you just have to like kind of make your own. And so that's where... Uh, the prevailing advice is just, you know, like, and there's so much of it now, mm-hmm. like just use your own judgment to, to make those calls. Okay. And then very last question. Um, what advice would you give to young graduates today who are just entering the workforce? Um, so I know I'm going to contradict myself with my earlier answer, <laughs> but yeah, like the thing that's been personally successful for me is, uh, and that I learned early on in, in, in my career is to just be, you know, evolve, like just be Johnny or Janie on the spot. And so if there's an opportunity that people either don't want or, or uh, you know, like it, it's the grunt work or the crappy work or blah, 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 like just raise your hand and do it. And that's been for me, like what's added the most value of taking these opportunities and then learning as much as you can and then being propelled for further opportunities. So uh, a lot of these days I find people are trying to shortcut their way or, you know, trying to just get through things as fast as possible, but without putting in and learning the, the, the rudimentary skills that it takes to succeed. And so for me, those have been, you know, a, a, a great attitude, a willingness to work really hard and to not make excuses and not to blame and just, yeah, like just a bias towards action. So 
the best advice I can do uh, is, is to just get your hands in there, get dirty, and don't be afraid of you know some of the some of the grunt work. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and an even bigger thanks to Andy for joining the interview. If you haven't already tried it, 500px can be reached at www.500px.com. As always, today's episode is brought to you by me, Joy. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud at Tell Me More Podcast, and check out the website at tellmemore.io. See ya next week.